Oh, what a joy to head into Christmas and to talk about the glorious way that our God broke into our world through his son, Jesus Christ. And at this time of year, often preachers will turn to the early chapters of either the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Luke. And they'll say something like this right here. I think we have the first Christmas ever. Well, I'd like to take that a step further. And I would like to say, as we dig into Luke chapter one today and see how Mary responded to God's word, I think we're looking at one of the first Christians ever. As you see, I want to show you today, whether you've been a Christian for years or whether you're still considering the claims of Christ and considering the message of Christianity, I want you to see from Luke chapter one, I want you to see what characterizes someone who says, yes, Lord Jesus, and accepts the free gift of grace. Turn with me to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, you follow along as I begin reading in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name. Say it. Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Gabriel is bringing an awareness to Mary that, you know what? I know you're an unwed young virgin girl. It's no harder for God to impregnate you and you stay a virgin than it is for God to put life in the womb of a barren woman who has longed for a child. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Verse 38, then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me. According to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. The word of the Lord. And all God's people said, you may be seated. So what does it mean to be a Christian today? And what would it look like for any man or woman who says yes, yes to following God and accepting his free gift of grace? Well, the first thing I want you to notice from our passage today, first thing I want you to notice is how it all starts with God and not us. That's why the Bible is such a big book comprised of 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1600 years, because it's all about, it's a record, an historical record of what God has been doing as long as there have been men and women. Christmas is not a moment where God all of a sudden got up off his throne and showed up and pierced through history. God has been at work for all time. And Christmas is simply one of the high points or pinnacles of what God has been doing. You see, God has been at work long before we ever choose to do anything. That's the first point I want you to see from the message. God has been at work long before we ever choose to do anything. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Here's what I want you to appreciate that sets the Bible apart from many other books. It is not myth. It is not legend. It is not story time with Uncle Brad. You'll see in the Bible real names and real places. And when you check it out in history, these people really existed and these places existed. Unlike the Book of Mormon who names coins and places and tribes and things that we find no record of. The Bible is a history. It gives details of real people and real places. But three words in verse 26 that are so much more important than any other name or place or person sent by, say it, God. Sent by God. God has been at work. Those three words give us one of the most fundamental facts about Christian Christmas and about what it means to be a Christian. It all starts with God. An angel was sent by God. God has been breaking through in human history from the very beginning. See, what you need to understand is that when we get to Christmas and December and the Gospels, this is simply a high point of all that God has been doing all the way back when sin first entered our world. And Adam and Eve, who were real people, first rebelled against God and sinned. God made a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he said, I'm going to send one who will solve this sin problem. I'm going to send one. And Genesis 3.15 says, Satan will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. God made a promise to send a savior to solve our biggest problem, which is our sin problem. And from that point forward, our enemy Satan has been pushing back through history, trying to abort This seed, because it was going to come through the seed of Eve, trying to abort this seed and stop Jesus from coming into this world. Just one chapter later in Genesis 4, 
Eve only has two offspring, Cain and Abel. Satan inspires Cain. If you read it in Genesis 4, you'll see Satan or sin was crouching at Cain's heart door. Inspires Cain to kill righteous Abel. But God puts seed in Eve's womb and she gives birth to a third son, Seth, through whom this righteous seed would come. And you just track it through the scriptures that that seed became a great nation through Abraham. But that great nation then ends up in slavery in Egypt for 430 years where Pharaoh tries to snuff out the Jews altogether and even commands all baby boys to be killed at birth. But a sister named Miriam saved her baby brother named Moses in a basket in the river who actually ends up in the palace because, oh, what a coincidence that Pharaoh's... I love the coincidences of the Bible. That Pharaoh's daughter, when she went to bathe, finds the baby, brings him into the palace, and that baby becomes Moses through whom God delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt. God has been at work all along as Satan has pushed back through history But Satan has not just been using outside forces or enemies to come against this promise that God made. You can read in 2 Kings chapter 11 where he uses inside enemies when Queen Athaliah seizes the throne of David and she orders the murder of all the rightful heirs of the throne which would have snuffed out the line of David which would have ended Jesus, the Messiah, coming in fulfillment of all the prophecies. But once again, there was a sister... Don't hate your sister. God uses sisters. There was a sister who had the courage to take and hide baby Joash while all the other heirs were being murdered. And then the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all tell us how the nation of Israel was taken captive and plundered by Assyria and then Babylon and then Medo-Persia until finally a wicked man named Haman, actually who was really the prime minister of Persia, plots the wholesale slaughter of the Jews all in one day and tricks the king into signing an edict that this is what will happen. But God had a little orphan Jewish girl named who just happened to be living in the palace, married to the king. And I love the phrase in Esther, for such a time as this. So listen to me. I know often when we turn to Luke 1 or Matthew 1, we think of goodwill towards men and peace on earth. And there is a measure of that. But I want you to consider today as we look at this passage that this announcement from Gabriel to Mary is also a war cry from the sovereign God of the universe delivering one more blow to our enemy Satan and saying, oh yes, you are going to be a virgin Jewish girl just like I predicted and promised and your womb will house the son of God who will become our savior fulfilling all that I've said would happen for centuries now. You cannot stop God. You can't stop God. So Christmas is just one glorious snapshot moment of what God has been doing as long as people have been sinners. God on the move. God on the move. But I do want you to notice this. Yes, God is sovereign. God's purposes and plans are moving. But he does choose 
to use people. We're not robots. We're not inconsequential. We're created in his image. And so it's worth noting, who does God choose to use? He uses real people in fulfilling his promises and purposes. Who does God choose to use most? Because it's so unlike our world. And that's my second point I want to make. And you can see it from this passage. God gives his gift of grace to some of the most ordinary people who get to become a part of God's extraordinary plan. If you want to look at a New Testament passage that drives this home, make yourself a note, 1 Corinthians, or maybe it's in the the bulletin, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says, but not many of you, not many of you are noble, not many of you are wise, not many, not many, not many, not many, not many. God doesn't choose who the world chooses. Ordinary people is who God chooses. So get this, don't, Make too much of Mary in this passage. Don't hear me saying make nothing of her. God chose to use a real woman who had a womb and to bring our God in flesh into this world. But don't make too much of Mary. This passage is really about God and God's grace and God's glory and God's goodness And God's ability to fulfill all of his promises from the very beginning. Yes, Mary's submission and obedience are commendable and even worth emulating. But she's just one ordinary person in a line of men and women that God has been using for centuries to accomplish his purposes. Mary was probably only 13 or 14 years old at the time the angel arrived. 13 or 14, imagine that. Because that was typically the age of a young girl who was betrothed to a man but not yet married. 13 or 14. And so she's going to be a very young, unwed mother in a very traditional culture, living in a little insignificant town called Nazareth that's part of one of the most despised regions called Galilee. So again, have that in mind, and here's what I'd like you to consider. In a real sense, Mary is a nobody from nowhere who God chooses to use to bring somebody into our world who would change the course of history and the eternal destinies of men and women forever. Forever. Now, if you grew up Roman Catholic or you're looking at verse 28 and you're pushing back right now, let me explain what verse 28 really says, right? Hail, highly favored one. God is with you. Blessed are you among women. It is most unfortunate that the Roman Catholic Bible translates verse 28 as well as the Latin Vulgate does also. Hail Mary, full of grace. It does not say that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say Hail Mary full of grace. The word right there for highly favored is a Greek word that has right in the middle of it the word charis, which does mean grace. But the word that's used right there in verse 28 literally means grace bestowed. God arrives and pours out grace on Mary. 
not, God was moving to and fro throughout the earth looking for a man or woman who was so full of grace already he could use her or him. No, praise God. So that's the problem. We tend to, if you set up Mary, you say, well, who is like Mary? Oh my goodness, we can't. Oh my goodness, yes, you can be Mary. You can have that childlike, trusting, the maidservant of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. Yes, Lord. Even if this is scary, yes, if I don't understand it all. Yes, if I'm going to be mocked. Yes, if my life's about to be difficult. Yes, if this doesn't match the plans that I have for my own life. Yes, if there's going to be an awkward conversation with Joseph. Yes, if I'm going to be gossiped about in Nazareth for the rest of my life. Yes, 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 Lord Jesus. But God chooses ordinary people upon which he pours out his extraordinary riches of his grace. Here's another thing you should make a note of. You say, Brad, how are you getting this? Well, when you look at the original word in the Greek there for highly favored, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. So make this a rule. Always interpret one passage or verse by another in the Bible, if possible. Where else is this used? Where else is this referred to? It's only used one other time in the Bible. And it's in Ephesians 1, verse 6. You might write that in your margin next to Luke 1, 28. Ephesians 1, 6. So highly favored or graced, highly graced, grace bestowed. It's only used one other time. And it's Ephesians 1, 6 where the apostle Paul just got done saying, oh my goodness, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He's chosen you. He's elected you. He's predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters. And so the natural question is, Oh my goodness, how do we get chosen? On what basis? Why us? Oh, he answers, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then verse six says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. That phrase, made us accepted, is the English translation of the same word being used in verse 28. So God made, Mary, accepted, poured out grace on her. So don't pray to Mary. And don't look to Mary as a depository of grace. That's what some churches teach. She's got all this extra grace. She's full of grace. Look to Mary. When you don't have enough grace, when you don't think you measure up, she does and you can get some of her grace applied to your account. That's a lie. That is misleading. That is deception. And it draws away the glory and majesty from Jesus Christ. There's only one person where you can find grace that can change your soul and your eternal destiny. There's only one person you should pray to and that is King Jesus The Bible never says, Mary, queen of heaven. There is no queen. There is a king, and his name is Jesus. Mary, grace bestowed, chosen. The riches of his grace poured out on her for this moment. But here's what I also want you to get a hold of. Here here we are making much of grace, and I love that word. Amazing grace. God's grace. And you think something free and you think unmerited and you think favor and you think I didn't deserve it. And you think that's all true. But I want you to notice the effect of this grace bestowal, this highly favored moment. Because it might surprise you. We make a mistake when we assume that God's amazing grace will always arrive and feel like a warm electric blanket 
with a hot mug of, of your favorite holiday drink. Sprinkled with some Meg on top. And your favorite music in the background. And I just slipped into my favorite well-worn slippers. Don't knock on the door. I don't look good, but I feel good. I'm happy. Right? We think that's, that's what grace is like. Oh, Snuggy down. Okay. There's a place for that. Yes. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Please know there's a place for that. But here's what you need to realize. Grace only becomes sweet once you've become nothing. What's the next phrase? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a Does your flesh naturally like that? Yes, call me wretch. No. And so grace only becomes amazing when you realize how awful you are and that you're nothing. But before that, grace can be quite unsettling. Grace can be quite disturbing. Whether you're considering coming to Christ or whether even you are a Christian. Because will grace always lead you only into the comfort zones of what you know and think you can do and feel comfortable with? And it makes sense to you and it's already how you'd planned out your life? (sighs) Can grace be scary? Yeah. That's what you see in Luke chapter 1. Look at Mary's response. It was unsettling. And that's the point I want to make. Number three, God's grace can be one of the most unsettling things you ever encounter here in this life. It's one of the sweetest. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is one of the sweetest things, but you will probably not live your entire life without also experiencing it being one of the most unsettling, disturbing, perhaps fearful things that you'll encounter. Because God's amazing grace trumpets the fact that you're a sinner in need of a savior And also, as well as the fact that somebody else is ultimately calling the shots in my life. And the human spirit does not like that. The human spirit is not default setting in that direction. And it seems to be the effect of the grace encounter on Mary. Look at her response of being called highly favored one. Graced, riches of his grace is on you. Verse 29, so she was troubled. That's one of the strongest Greek words that means to be agitated, upset, confused, thoroughly perplexed. The message paraphrase gets it, gets it right when it says she was thoroughly shaken. Yeah, grace will shake you and rock your world at points. And that's why in verse 29, it goes on to say that she wondered or considered. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking, I wonder as I wonder. You know, just real mystical and whimsy. No, no, no. Those translations really are, fall woefully short of what the original word there. The word there is dialogizathe. And it means your mind is furiously churning. Your mind is furiously thinking. Your mind is furious. It's a word that was used for accounting where you try to do an audit. You try to get categories. You try to have columns. You try to make what you see happening and what you're hearing fit with what you already know. What do I do with this? Where do I place this unsettled, troubled mind furiously churning like the hard drive of a computer trying to find categories for this? And then in verse 30, we know she's afraid because the angel says, do not be afraid. She's perplexed. 
troubled. Mind is racing and churning for categories with what to do with this. And she's afraid. That's what a grace encounter with the living God will often look like. Now, I would actually say to you, and I mean this in love. If you're sitting there saying, I've never, ever, ever had a moment like that related to God. If you've never had a moment where you have felt confused, perplexed, undone, your world thrown into chaos by what you think you've just seen about who God is and what he asks of you in light of what he's doing for you, you just might never have encountered the living God. If it's all just very safe an electric warm blanket and tight, neat little categories that all make sense to you and well scripted, it's likely you have never encountered the living God. An encounter with the living God can be quite frightening, can be quite unsettling, can throw all your categories into chaos. John Piper, in commenting on this passage, says, I would wager that you have discovered in your own life that grace does not always come with a welcome face. The highest and most precious gifts of God do not always come to us in attractive colors. Grace can perplex. Grace can frighten. Oh, how we need to learn from Mary not to lash out at God for the frightening forms of grace. What about you? Maybe you've been guilty of saying even, oh God, I need your grace. I just feel like I'm not getting your grace. I need your grace. But is it just that you have expected grace to only have one kind of face? Electric blanket, warm, comfortable, makes total sense to me, fits my logical reasoning. God may be giving you grace And it's the frightening face of unsettling grace. But often until we're unsettled, we can't become settled in what matters most. Grace. Grace. That's the testimony of Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. When the grace of God exploded in her life, she wasn't looking for God. She wasn't seeking God. Why? Because Romans chapter 1 and 2 says, nobody seeks after God. Nobody. She wasn't seeking God. In fact, she was 36 years old, a tenured professor in English literature, heading up the Center for Women's Studies, living with her lesbian lover, and leading all the clubs on campus that promoted lesbianism and homosexuality. That was Rosario Butterfield when she made the mistake of beginning to read the Bible simply for our research project. That's all. And then a local church pastor wrote her a kind letter instead of getting in her face and yelling and screaming filled with hate. He loved her in response to a letter she sent to the editor of the newspaper that he read bashing Christianity, but he loved her and opened his heart and his home to her. And they began loving conversations and she's reading God's word. And listen to how she describes her grace encounter that led her to become a Christian. She says, quote, I often wonder, God, Why pick me? I didn't ask to be a Christian convert. I didn't seek the Lord. Instead, I ran like the wind when I suspected someone would start peddling the gospel to me. So this word conversion is simply two 
tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of their prayers. Grace will rock your world. Grace will throw your categories into disorder. Grace can be very unsettling before it comes sweet. But oh, what a mercy that God sends unsettling grace to lead us to amazing grace in his son. Just recently, I spent time one evening talking to someone who is seriously considering. I don't mean in an intellectual, academic, scholarly kind of way, following Christ. They're hurting. They're burdened. They're concerned. They've rejected Christianity for years, but now they're at a point where they were sitting, talking with me, saying, I'm seriously considering the claims of Christ and becoming a Christian. But here's what's interesting. At one point in our conversation, they looked at me and said, every time I seriously think of giving my life to Christ, I get scared. And I feel something inside me screaming, don't do it. Don't do it. See, listen, that is your sinful flesh and my sinful flesh. That's your sinful flesh that doesn't want to give up control of your life and doesn't want you to yield to any other authority that wants you to continue to be autonomous, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, make plans, have your categories, Human spirit and human flesh is rocked by the thought of someone else being my Lord. It is not always an intellectual problem that people have with the gospel. It's a will problem that is rooted in our sin problem that says, I want to stay in control of my life. I have the right to my own life and calling the shots in my own life. So see, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me put into words what might be going on inside of you. And I want to illustrate it with with a story that Tim Keller tells about a woman in his church. About how grace can be unsettling. We tend to think if you're a Christian now, hopefully you know, whoo, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But that's not how grace is heard by those that don't know him. So he talks about this woman who was in his church and as she was attending... She said she heard for the first time a distinction being made between God's free gift of grace, unmerited in the gospel, versus religion that is all about what I do and I work so hard to do all the right things for God. And this woman had grown up in church inside the church. Can you be inside the church and still not know Jesus Christ as your savior? I hope you know the, the, the scary answer is yes. In fact, some of the people inside the church are some of the hardest to reach because there can be this sense of, I do what others don't do. Here I am. Others are watching NFL today and getting a jump on all the things we want to know about the games today. Other people are getting their shopping and other people are wrapping packages. Here I am. And I'm even in a small group and I give some money or you could have a sense of, 
I do this for God. This is my religion. Therefore, he should accept me because see how I'm better than other people? That is religion that will land you in hell. Religious people are in hell. God's free gift of grace can be quite unsettling because listen to what the lady says. He sat down with her to say, she said, this message of amazing grace terrifies me. He said, well, why? She said this. She said, I grew up in the church and I had always thought that God accepts you if you're good enough and if you're working hard enough to do all the right things. And she says, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now would deserve a certain quality of life back from God. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Don't make a misstep here. She's not saying, oh, it's overwhelming all that God is going to ask me to do to become a Christian. And when he sees I've done enough, he'll say, good. That's not what she's saying. She gets it. The salvation is free, unmerited. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, plus nothing. But when you come to God and you experience unmerited, saving, highly favored grace, you do not just tip your hat towards God and his son. You are a slave, a bond slave. Of You're a happy one. You're a happy bond slave. You're like, oh my goodness, I was nothing. I could have never saved myself. I want to live for you. You say, yes. You say like Mary, behold, the maid servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you say, you own my life now. I'm bought with a price. I don't have rights to my own life anymore. That is quite terrifying to the human Spirit. See, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, has an edge to it because it puts to death my right to hold on to my own life and to stay in control. What about you? Do you have religion today or do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that only comes when you say, Yes, Lord? And Lord is not like just the thing you put in front of someone's name, Mr. Bigney or Mrs. or Miss. Lord meant Lord, master, ruler, authority, ownership. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you a happy bond slave saying now, wherever, whatever you tell me, I want to get in on what you're doing It's not all about my agenda and how I've scripted my life. You don't owe me anything. God is not, oh, I hate the bumper sticker. It's kind of gone now, but God is my co-pilot. Shut up. You're just hanging on the tail of the plane. You are not in the, you're not in the main seat with God. But that's human nature. I'd love to add God on a consulting basis right here for when I need him, when I want him, but don't intrude into my life. God intrudes into our lives, my friends. That's why it's so unsettling. And so sweet when you submit and say, yes, Lord, Jesus, 
But I want you to notice how I keep talking about grace and Jesus. Grace and Jesus. And here's why. Point number four. God's grace is always centered around God's son. Grace is not just something out there, some entity we try to grab hold of. Grace is found in a person and his name is King Jesus. God's grace is always centered around God's son. You can see how the Holy Spirit just throws the floodlight on King Jesus in verses 31 to 33 in our passage. This is where if this passage was a piece of sheet music, there'd be a big crescendo mark, which means build. Filled with intensity, the timpani drums would kick in, the strings would soar, the brass would roar, because this is the pinnacle moment. Not Mary, King Jesus. Nowhere in this passage are superlatives used towards Mary like what we see in verses 31 to 33. Look at it again. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. Call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, there will be no end. Nowhere does the angel talk about Mary like that because it's all about Jesus. King And there's so much we could unpack from those three verses, but I want to just show you two things that are worth noting about the majesty and glory of King Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the perfect ruler of a perfect kingdom our world has yet to see, but it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Oh, we don't have time to dig into all of it, but dozens of Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled and referred to in these three verses, 31, 32, 33. You understand what Gabriel's saying? Yes. He's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. Yes, Jesus literally is going to rule on a throne in Jerusalem on this earth during the thousand year period of the millennium. But greater than that, when he says, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is right now ruling over a kingdom and reigning over the nations. And his throne is an everlasting throne. He's not voted in or out. His power and influence are not diminished by Congress or Senate. He does what he pleases and what he pleases is good. And his authority and kingdom far usurps that of Donald Trump or that of Vladimir Putin or that of Kim Jong-un and all his mad grab for power and his schoolyard antics over nuclear power. When you realize King Jesus right now is ruling, you'll sleep better. It's not coming. It's not, oh, when's he going to have an opportunity? He rules and reigns over his kingdom now. From the moment he rose from the dead, he ascended on high and he took the seat next to the father and he's making this world his footstool. Jesus rules and reigns and is coming back and we get to be his happy bond servants right now. Living for him, being the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God while we work real jobs in real factories, on factory floors, in computer rooms, in libraries, on construction sites, on universities. But we get to be a part of something the world can't see with their eyes. God is building his kingdom now. We get to be his kingdom people. But I want you to notice also Jesus is the promised savior of our biggest problem. That our world could never solve, but he did. A committee of men and women, research projects. You can't throw enough money at our biggest problem, which is not 
an economic problem and not a a horizontal relationship problem and not a health problem, not an insurance problem, not a feed the hungry problem. Those are problems, no doubt, but they pale in comparison to our greatest problem, which was the sin problem that separate us from a holy God. And we could never bridge the gap. We could have never been good enough. We could have never kept the 10 commandments perfectly. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves and became the sin bearer and became sin for us, my sin and your sin was put on him and God the Father poured out his wrath on his son instead of us so that you could be forgiven, you could go free and you could serve him as a happy bond servant. Say, thank you, Lord. That's what he's done. He didn't come to to feed the hungry. He didn't come to start a social revolution. He didn't come to be a do-gooder or just a, a kind teacher or a good example. He came to be our savior. That's why verse 31, he says, the angel says, call his name, what? And over in Matthew 1, we get more details. When the angel showed up with Joseph, he gave more details and said, call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. What a savior. That's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. It's not ho, ho, ho. It's not just some vague, mystical believe. Thank you, Macy's. Believe in what? (laughs) Your prices are better than others. Like Christmas is all about the most high became the most low so that those who are unworthy could become worthy in God's sight based on the merit of another. You never attracted God's love. Therefore, you don't have the burden of keeping God's love. He loves you in his son and it can never be taken from you. It cannot be shaken. What a security we have. It's in Jesus. That's the gift we're talking about every Christmas. This gift in God's son. So I hope you're thinking by now, Brad, If you're not a Christian, how does this grace become my grace? How does this savior become my savior? Final point, God's grace becomes your grace by faith in God's word. Not religious works, not a list of do's and don'ts, not looking around to see who you find to look at and say, well, I'm better than them. I haven't done what they've done. Push all that off the table. Faith. In God's word. You see two references to it about Mary. Now here's where Mary is worth emulating. Here's where we can say, what a great example. Don't worship her, but do say, I want to be like Mary on that. Look at verse 38. Her response, let it be to me according to your, say it. Not my feelings, not my own categories, not my own desires, not my own agenda. Your word. And then in verse 45, Elizabeth talking about Mary says, she believed. But oh my goodness, that is not simply a word, you guys, that says, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe there's a God. I believe in, he was a historical figure. The word believed in verse 45 is the Greek word pistuo. And it meant to commit yourself. In fact, to rely upon someone or someone else rather than yourself. You're convinced it's true and you step out and commit and rely on it. It is far more than intellectual assent. Oh, I I believe Jesus lived. 
She believed. She committed. She relied. What about you? What about you? Do you believe? Are you relying on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and not your own good works and not your list and not... Where is your hope? And let me correct a mistake that I hear sometimes when I say, do you believe, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? I'll hear people say sometimes, here's how they'll talk about it. Well, I just wish I had faith like my sister or my brother. I just, I just can't believe like they do. I don't have that kind of faith. I'm glad they do. Here's what those statements reveal. What you're saying is faith is just something that hits you. You either have it or you don't, and I don't have it. So I respect you for your faith, but I got to wait until I have this faith kind of feeling. Let me help you. Faith is not something that just hits you. And faith is not the antithesis of thinking and reasoning. Christians are not just a group of the stupidest people who just shut their brains off and took a leap into the dark of faith. Saying, I know it makes no sense. I know there's no evidence of it. None of it's credible, but I'm going to believe. Merry Christmas. No way. This book is like no other book. You take the Book of Mormon. Try to find the coins they talk about. Can't. Try to find the cities they mention. Can't. Try to find the people they talk about. Can't. And all we have in our world are people trying to dig to build a shopping center or something else. And they discover, oh, lo and behold, yes. Just like the Bible said, that city is there. That coin is there. Read secular history. That person ruled and reigned during that time. God's word is true and it can stand up to scrutiny. Here's what I would say to you if you're that person saying, well, it just hasn't hit me. I just don't have faith. It doesn't hit you. It's the result of thinking and reasoning and reading God's word and then choosing to submit your will and saying, I do believe this is the best answer. This is credible because you do have faith. Don't say you don't have faith. Everybody's exercising faith. Your faith might be in yourself that what you think is, is better or your faith might be in something else or someone else. Everybody sitting here is exercising faith to some degree. The question is, where are you placing your faith at the end of the day? As you, as a Creature created in the image of God, think your way through our world and you know it's broken and you know you're broken and you know something is terribly wrong and you know there must be an answer, there must be some hope, there must be. Question is, what have you concluded? Whatever you're believing and wherever you've settled in, you're exercising faith that you believe you're right and you're staking your eternal destiny on that. I'm simply calling you to put faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who he is and what he did. I want to ask you to bow your heads as we close. What about you? Would you be willing? Listen, you know enough and you've heard enough. Come to Christ today. You need to bow your knee and bend your will saying, yes, Lord Jesus Be it to me according to your word. No one else could solve my sin problem. But there's another group sitting here. You might have been a Christian for years, but could it be that you've become guilty of your childlike trust and willingness to follow God wherever he leads? 
has gotten squeezed out by your own human logic and your desire to play it safe and only do what you can see yourself doing and what makes sense to you. The answer is the same for both groups. I would love for you today to follow the example of Mary in verse 38 and be willing to say, behold, the maidservant, slave, whether it's coming to faith in Christ or whether it's choosing again to say, you know what? I'm the happy bond slave. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll, I'll be whoever you're asking me to be, even if it doesn't make sense to me. Come to Christ, whether for salvation or for future direction of your life. Yes, Lord Jesus. Oh God, thank you for the greatest gift, Jesus Christ. Thank you that the most holy became the most lowly to rescue us. May we be like Mary. Let it be to me according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.